Content on this production is for entertainment and informational purposes only. It is not medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute medical treatment or diagnosis. Seek medical help if you believe that you are suffering from a mental illness or are a threat to yourself or others. By using any or all of the information provided, you do so at your own risk. Any application of the material is at the listener's discretion and is his or her sole responsibility. Everybody, Doc Bryan here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about trials, troubles, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs. Today with me, I have Logan Hunter. And Logan, where, you're in Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, somewhere down there in the Delta. Where are you from? South Carolina right now. South Carolina, that's right. And so we're, uh, we're glad to have him. I, I came across him on TikTok. And one of the things that I noticed about Logan was in the, I'm going to say early days of your TikTok was that I could just sense that there was something, I'm not going to say not right with you, but that there was, there was something emotionally that was troubling you. Being a psychologist, we kind of can pick up on those things. And then I noticed one day that you began to be very open about your mental health issues and were looking a whole lot better and your, you know, your your smile was more authentic and your eyes were glowing more and that sort of thing. So I'm glad to have you with us today and uh, look forward to hearing your story. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Have you always been from South Carolina or where are you from originally? No, so originally I'm from Indiana, but over the last four years. I've moved all over. I've lived in Missouri, Texas, South Carolina, overseas for a little bit. So South Carolina is where I am right now. And I've been here for about the last year and a half. And it's about the longest I've stayed in one spot in the last four years. Gotcha. So how do you like South Carolina? Well, the fact that it's uh, pretty much winter and it's still pretty warm, I enjoy it. There's some ups and downs to it. Uh, I don't particularly like the whole moving around thing all the time, but I do enjoy being in the South. I'm more of a Southern person at heart. So... (laughs) I lived in North Carolina for a while in uh, in Wilmington, so it was it was unique to be able to drive just a couple of hours and experience all four seasons in a weekend. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it, it's very nice. So growing up in Indiana, what was that like? Oh, geez, my childhood was interesting. My parents, both of them, amazing parents, love them to death, and I know that they would do anything for me. Lived next to a cornfield most of my life. Not a farmer, it's just my housing addition was right next to a cornfield. So if that kind of sets the picture of where I grew up. You know, it was a great, safe place. Nobody really know how to worry about much at all. Not too much to do. So you had to hang out with your friends, you played sports. Uh, that was pretty much my life growing up. I was like, you know, multiple sport athlete. My parents were super supportive for me, my brother, and my sister. Mom worked in uh, healthcare, dad worked in education. Small town, 10,000 people, kind of town where everybody waves at each other because everybody knows each other. So brother and sister older, younger? So I have an identical twin brother and my sister's four years older. Now, when you say identical twin, are you one of the twins where you actually look alike or you're completely different? No, we look a lot alike. Okay. So if you do a TikTok and it's your twin brother, are we going to notice that there's an imposter or are we going to know that it's not the real Logan? If I didn't mention it, I don't know if people would notice our mannerisms are pretty different. But other than that, it's probably the only way people would notice. Okay, so you've got to do a TikTok of where your brother is there instead of you, and then we try to figure it out. All right, I'll see what I can do. All right. How was it, you know, I've talked to people before where their parents were in education, and that 
made, especially in a small town, made it a whole lot harder growing up because, you know, with your dad being in education, they kind of know things that are going on that we don't necessarily know is going on a lot of times. And then they know we've done things before we know that anybody knows that we've done things. So how did that kind of associate with your growing up? I mean, it was a big part of my life. Uh, dad, he wasn't always, he wasn't only in education, but he was actually the superintendent of our school system. So uh, when I said everybody in town, maybe we were, it was not uncommon for us to be walking to the store and people would be like, are you, know, are you Logan or are you your brother? I'm like, I don't know you. But um, <laughs> it wasn't exactly an uncommon thing, but it, you know, it did have some benefits to it. You know, not in like that we could use anything, but just the fact that, you know, the simple benefit of, for example, if it was going to be snowing the next day or something like that, I typically knew further ahead of everyone else that there was going to be a snow day. So I get to sleep in a little bit without having to wake up and check the TV like we used to have to do. Yeah. The kids nowadays know nothing about that ticker line at the bottom of the oh, TV they don't know what and you're like waiting for your school to be called. Yeah. They don't know what it's like to sit there and pray that it's yours. But yeah. it was, it was a very interesting, it was a very interesting way growing up. It did set the standard though with my parents, you know, uh, both my parents have worked really, really hard for everything they had in their life. Nothing was ever given to them. And uh, they pushed that on us to make sure that we would actually be able to do the things that we want to do in life and be able to support a family. I'd say the hardest part about that was, though, was because their family was uh, so well known in our hometown and because uh, everyone knew who we were. There was that higher standard that we had to appeal. Uh, like, for example, getting good grades, it wasn't something that, you know, we wanted to do even though we did, it was something that we had to do because our family had that, that reputation to maintain, uh, you know, as far as doing things like character wise and stuff like that, we had to avoid, you know, doing dumb, stupid teenager things. Cause my dad used to say, he's like, if you guys get in trouble for doing something, he's like, then I can't keep my job. He's like, I'll have to resign because, uh, I have, you know, I can't be telling everyone else's parents that their kids can't do this stuff. And then my kids get in trouble for it. So we had to be very, very careful about the type of things that we did who we associated with, uh, making sure that, you know, we wouldn't hurt her family's name. How important do you think that is for kids today to realize that there is some, you know, standard within a family name that, that you're to uphold? I think it's definitely, it's definitely something that kids these days, they don't really think about as much. I think they should though, because it's, you know, it, it is a big part of who I am. Like I take pride in my family. I take pride in my name. I take pride in what my parents have accomplished and all of us have done uh, as a result of, you know, their great parenting. So I think it's definitely something that should be taken pride in, even though it isn't as much as it should be anymore. Right. So growing up in the home uh, with a twin and then a sister, did you ever feel like that you were kind of ostracized from a brother and sister or you were set apart or things were different for you than the others? Being a twin, it's like, you know, colorblind people, they don't know you're colorblind until someone tells you you're colorblind. Whereas for us, you know, people always ask like, what's it like being a twin? And to me, I knew absolutely nothing different. So I don't know. Uh, but the hardest part about it was that my brother and I were very, very competitive with each other. And it's not, you know, in a malicious nature or anything of that kind, but it's just that we intentionally did different sports. We didn't like to play the same sports, uh, just that we wouldn't have to directly compete with each other. But it was always that level of competition between us for every single thing, regardless if we even tried to make it competitive or not. Uh, so that was a big factor that contributed to, um, I guess, my brother and I's relationship growing up. 
my sister and I though, uh, you know, she was the older sister, like she was protective of us, but she also liked to mess with us when we were younger. So we did the same thing with her. But then once, uh, you know, she graduated high school and went off to college and our relationship started uh, getting a lot better. So what, what sports did you play? So I was a competitive swimmer and I played soccer. I swam year round and I played soccer uh, just during the season. Okay. Cause you don't really look like you're built to be a swimmer at all. You know, what are you probably six foot tall? No, I'm, I'm five ten. You're right. Okay. So you're just almost there, but you're only like, you know, 110 pounds, maybe yeah, soaking people, wet. <laughs> no, I'm about 165 actually. Okay. Yeah. But the people, no, the people that could beat me, they were about six, two, six, three, and they were, they were like 220, just solid muscles. Like this is ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. Swimmers tend to be more muscular than, than others. So if you did uh, swimming and soccer, your brother did basketball, baseball. No, so he actually, he played football and then he was a uh, pole vaulter. Gotcha. So okay. he was like a state, he was like a, one of the top, top 10 in the state for pole vaulting. Okay. So during your, your childhood there, let's, let's think high school to grade school. What is the one uh, thing that that really just sticks out that was one of the best memories that you have from high school back. Jeez, I haven't even thought about that far back. Probably our family vacations. Is that every year my parents they would always try and take us on a family vacation somewhere. It was you know, the one time where it was like it wasn't about anything else other than just spending time with family. Pretty much all the times that I just spend with family. So Christmas is Thanksgiving stuff like that. I don't really have too many memories of, you know, hanging out with friends or anything along those lines. So definitely all the time I spent with my family, probably. And what would be one of the worst things that happened to you in that, that period of time? I'm not entirely sure. I, I don't know. I, I tend to, I tend to compartmentalize bad things in my life. So I, uh, I have this thing where I just tell myself when something happens, I tell myself a lie and then I tell myself another lie and I keep telling it over and over and over again, different lie every single time. So where I can't even tell what the memory was anymore. So it's actually very hard for me to be able to remember bad things, especially long ago. Right. So you disassociate those things and, and try to delude yourself into believing that it didn't either really happen or that it wasn't real as bad as you thought it was. It's not that I make it to where I don't think that it didn't happen or that it's that it was as bad as I thought it was. It's that I try to, I can, I remember enough to acknowledge that something did happen, but I just don't know in any sort of detail what it was. And just off the cuff here, do you think that that's healthy? And that's something that I struggle with a lot. I don't know if it's healthy or not. I have no idea. It's just something I've always kind of done. And it's, uh, well, I guess it worked. For a while. But. So do you ever have those moments where something happens in life and then you're thrown back to this childhood memory that you forgot about completely, whether good or bad? Maybe good, bad, not really. Um, but good, like I said, it just comes down to mostly like time I spent with my family. So, so if I'm doing something with my family, I'll think about when we did the same thing years back. Like there is one memory that I have and I have no idea why I remember this one particular thing is that when I was younger, my mom, she was making something for my fifth birthday. And I can remember vividly on exactly where I was at, like how I was sitting. I can picture it exactly in my head right now. And this is at our old house that I haven't seen in almost 20 years. And so that's like the one thing, for some reason, that's the one super vivid memory that I have, but it all comes back down to the family thing that I remember vivid things about my family. This may be a weird question, but when something bad happens to you, 
does your brain take you back and make you feel like you're sitting there at your fifth birthday party ever? Not really. No. no. When bad things happen to me, I tend to, I tend to take those as isolated incidents of like, this is, you know, I don't, I don't tend to connect them together because when I connect them together, that's when I started getting, you know, struggling with depression and anxiety and stuff like that, which is why you know, I taught myself like, Hey, this is a completely separate incident from this, 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 they're completely unrelated. So I tend to try and avoid stringing things together. Gotcha. Which is good that we can associate between uh, separate instances. And, and a lot of times we don't do that, especially when we get depressed, we kind of just let it all run together. And so the good really then does seem to outweigh the bad. And, and before you know it, we're, we're deep, dark and in depression. So now moving on into getting out of uh, high school, did you go directly into the military or did you go to college or? So I did, um, I did my undergrad and while I was doing my undergrad, I enlisted in the National Guard so they would help pay for school at the same time. So I went to basic training in AIT immediately after my freshman year down at Fort Benning. And then I was in the guard for the remainder of my time in college until I graduated. And what is your bachelor's in? It's in international studies focus on uh, security diplomacy and governance. So what was your intention with that degree? So I don't know how I foreshadowed this, but somehow I always thought I'm actually a pacifist by nature, which is really weird, you know, considering my job. But with my uh, time back then, I kept thinking that if something was going to happen, in the, if something was going to happen in the world, what's the way that I can basically, if I can think about something and I can figure out a diplomatic solution on how to figure out how to achieve the intent of what needs to be done without, you know, everyone having to be violent toward each other without also giving any sort of a ground or giving anything, you know, that we need to maintain, then that's the best option. That's typically the path that I uh, chose to take. So, you know, that's why when I was in uh, undergrad, I chose to take that path. So that way, if I ever did come to a situation specifically in the military, that if I can avoid inflaming a situation because I had these different, you know, skills and lessons that I've learned throughout school, then I could possibly avoid conflict. Not in like a way of like, you know, if it needs to be done, it will be done. And it will be, you know, very, very swift and efficient. But other than that, there's, if there's no reason to cause conflict, then you know, it should be avoided. And that's just the way that I personally look at things. So are you good with confrontation? Uh, it depends on what kind of confrontation it is. So if it's like, if somebody's attacking me or my family or something that I care about, I can be confrontational. However, it's something related, like, you know, some random guy comes up to me and just starts wanting to fight me. I'm like, oh, no, go away. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to entertain this. So if it's, you know, if I need to stand my ground, I will, but other than that, I won't. Gotcha. Uh, and so from the national guard, then you went into the army. Correct. I went into the active army. Okay. And so I, I just want to notate here because I think that sometimes our national guard doesn't get the recognition that it deserves. I have heard, I, which I live here in, in Little Rock. And so we have Camp Robinson, which is a National Guard Army base. And then we have the Little Rock Air Force Base. So we kind of have a, a melting pot of, of military personnel. And, and I have heard people say things like, well, the National Guard isn't the real army. And, and I think that, that sometimes we downplay that we need the National Guard just as much as we need the army. And so I do want to say thank you for your service. And uh, on both both fronts, uh, with the National Guard and with the Army. So going into the National Guard, did that really prepare you for what you were looking to do in the Army? So it gave me a basis. One of the biggest things that I decided 
Um, I could have gotten my school paid for it without going into the guard. Um, I already had scholarships to do that. However, the main reason I chose to was because I knew that uh, I would be getting a commission as an officer. I knew that that's what I wanted to do, but I also knew that you know the best way to lead and the best way to get people to understand you and where you can understand them is to have a shared experience. I'm at the bottom of the food chain and, you know, I go through basic training, I go through AIT, you know, I get, you know, got to do push-ups, move sandbags here to here. Why? I don't know. But, you know, if you have to do, if you have to embrace the suck, then when you actually go forward and you're dealing with, uh, you know, people that were in your shoes or that are in uh, your shoes now, then it changes your perspective a little bit. You know, you're a lot more, uh, I'm a lot more protective towards the people under me. So when someone from higher is like, hey, let's do this. I'm like, oh, that's that's kind of dumb. Let's, you know, if, is there any way that we can avoid not doing that? Or make sure I can think things, um, I guess, on a multi-dimensional level rather than just, you know, they told us to do this. So it, it, it has increased my critical thinking abilities, at least when it comes towards uh, manpower. I was a band nerd in high school. And uh, I got the Semper Fidelis Award my senior year of high school and was offered full scholarship to go wherever I wanted to if I would go play in the Marine Corps band. And uh, I jokingly say that I could write and read without crayons, and so they wouldn't take me because I was too smart. But the the whole aspect of it was that I didn't want to go through the the basic training that it takes. There are some that have insinuated that if we had – uh, are young people required to do a year, let's say, of military service that we would have much different America today? What are your thoughts on that? You know, obviously, you know, with my position, I can't speak on policy or anything like that. But personally, you know, I, from my experience is that it has definitely changed, you know, the way that I look at things from the people that I've worked with has definitely changed the way that we all have looked at things. So, you know, I, personally think that people, not necessarily military service, but something that serves other people, uh, you know, whether it's military, Peace Corps, EMS, fire, police, whatever it may be, you know, just personally, I have noticed that there is a big difference between the way that people who have served in those professions look at the world compared to those who haven't. Not saying that those who haven't, you know, have a bad or negative worldview or anything like that, but we tend to look at things and look at ourselves in a different light than everyone else. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's almost like a family who has had uh, a loved one that uh, has a substance abuse issue. They look at things differently than they did prior to that. Uh, and they have a lot more compassion and love for those type of people that your average Joe citizen might not. So now going into the army, what was, what was your first job? I guess we'll call it a job in the army. So I guess we'll go back to my, you know, time in the guard. When I was in the guard, I enlisted as an infantryman. That's, you know, I went through basic training in AIT. We call it OSIT. So I went through OSIT down at Fort Benning, did that for, you know, the entire time that I was uh, in undergrad. Then once I commissioned, I uh, commissioned as an engineer officer. I call it broad spectrum engineering is the way that I described it to my parents when I first did it. You know, or they teach us, you know, vertical engineering, which is building structures, horizontal engineering, which is, you know, dirt moving, concrete, anything like that, anything foundationally. And then they teach us, you know, the actual military style engineering, such as, you know, route clearance, which is, you know, what I'm specifically trained in, and then other types of combat engineering. So that's what I've been uh, trained in. And I did that for about the first year and a half that I was in the, that I was in the military, or still am, first year and a half in the military. And then after that, I moved into some other positions that weren't necessarily engineer related. 
being, uh, as you put it, a broad spectrum engineer, what does that really look like in the military? When you have engineer officers, that is different than a lot of other officers in the military. So with engineers specifically, is that, you know, with me being a combat engineer and say somebody, they need something done, like, you know, the structure build or this, you know, dirt move, or they want to build something, they'll bring it to me and be like, hey, you, you're an engineer, figure it out. Even though I'm not specifically trained in that, I'm trained to understand, I can at least look at what they want and I'm like, okay, I know how to do this. I've just never done it. So it's just something uh, that they give to us. Like when the military has a problem they can't solve, they throw it at their engineers and we're just expected to produce a result that works. So it's a little different. It's very, very um, rewarding though. So would you consider yourself a problem solver? I'd say that's, I try to be skeptical, I guess you could say about my own abilities, but Solving problems is something that I do try to do. As a problem solver, you said you're skeptical about your abilities. Would you be skeptical about your abilities in the Army or not in the Army that you're confident in your abilities, but in your personal life, you're a little skeptical about your abilities? Uh, I think definitely more personal life. Like in the Army, I've been told by others that I am. My boss actually just told me, he said that some, some people don't like working with me because they say that. I'm arrogant, which I'm like, okay. And, and you know, he was like, the phase, he was like, not at all. And, you know, he was like, well, it should. I was like, but it doesn't because, you know, I, I walk the line between confidence and arrogance. It's like, you know, arrogant people, they have, there's something they don't know. They want to ask for help. Me, if there's something I don't know, I'm be like, Hey, you know anything about this? I don't know anything about this. Like, you want to help me figure it out? I've got no problem asking others for help or asking, you know, for reference or anything like that but I am extremely confident in the things that I know, I know that I know them. When you know your job, you know your job. And so that does reflect. But in my personal life, it is, it's much harder for me to be confident in my abilities because I think it's that I haven't necessarily discovered what those abilities are. So do you ever find like you feel like you're living two different lives? Oh, completely. And that's, and that's what I describe to people is that, you know, even people that have seen me in a military environment versus in a normal civilian environment, they, I'm almost two different people. But it's because, you know, I have to, it's the same reason I don't live on post is because to me mentally is that in order to leave work, I have to be leaving the gate. So I disassociate, you know, work life from home life. And, you know, at work in my job, you know, we have the standards that we have to meet. So I have to be very asympathetic to a lot of things like when, you know, I work in basic training right now. So, you know, if they don't meet these certain requirements or anything like that. They have to either go back and do them. And if they fail that, then we send them to another unit and the will knock them back a couple of weeks. And they're usually pretty upset about it, which, you know, it's understandable, but my job is not necessarily to exercise that sympathy during those situations. So, you know, after you do stuff like that many, many, many times, then, you know, you kind of learn that you have to detach yourself from those emotional connections at that point. And you have to look at it, you know, I, I look at it as the bigger picture of, okay, this is what the army needs to do. My job is to execute it and make sure that, you know, this is what is done. You know, that is something that is hard, um, especially then when I take it over to my personal life, because, you know, personally, I'm a very, I like to be a very generous person. Um, I'm a fairly empathetic person, but then that's why I like a lot of my friends, like you seem like a completely different person. I'm like, I'm the same person. I just have to exercise two different sides of me. Sure. And so, you know, when, when quarantine started, I started working from home and quickly found that that didn't work. And so I came to the office because I had to have this disassociation of, I hate to say reality from personal life, but I had to be able to not take things home 
people's problems, situations. I totally get what you're saying about having to leave base in order to feel that that disconnect. How important do you think it is for people right now who are having to work from home to have that disconnect some way or somehow? I think it's highly important. I mean, even when I was, uh, so I was on quarantine uh, for, you know, several weeks. We were just, you know, separating our four styles. That way, you know, we wouldn't take down everybody at one time if somebody got it. I was intentionally, when I started going into my master's, which I completed in July, I have an entire separate room that I have for my office that I use for, you know, doing schoolwork. So that way, I came home, okay, this is my work area. When I leave this room, I'm off the clock when it comes to doing schoolwork. So even though it's in my own home, I was able to isolate this one area to where when I leave this area, okay, now I'm not doing schoolwork. So I still think it's extremely important. And how important do you think that is for your mental health? Definitely needed. Being able to isolate, you know, the things in my life that, you know, can cause stresses and the things in my life that don't, it's, you know, it's one of the things that once I learned how to do that, it was much easier to go to function normally. Absolutely. So congratulations on your master's degree. Thank you. Uh, what, what is your master's degree in? International real estate. International real estate. So are you going to be like um, on international uh, house hunters or something like that? No, I'm still trying to figure, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I want to do. I'm thinking either real estate investment with owning my own company or possibly getting my license and becoming a broker. Gotcha. So you're still in the army. Is that right? Or you National Guard? I'm still in the Army. Okay. And you're Lieutenant? Captain. captain. You are Captain. But you just recently got promoted. Is that right? As of July. And that changed with, with the master's degree? Is that how no, that works? That was that was unrelated from you know second lieutenant to first lieutenant, first lieutenant to captain. Those are pretty much automatic promotions. It all comes down to time and service and time and grade. So as long as you don't do anything dumb, like get a DUI or you know commit a felony or something like that, then pretty much anything. How long have you been in the Army now? Uh, if you include my guard time, eight years. Eight years. Okay. And during the time in the Army or the National Guard, uh, were you ever deployed? I was. I was. So from November 2017 till about July 2018, I was overseas. And can you not necessarily tell us what you did, but how did your life change going to a foreign country where you didn't have all the support system that you have, being able to leave the base, you know, all of that kind of stuff. How did that change? Well, just for lack of a better word, how did that change your mental health? It was definitely an adjustment. Uh, like where I lived specifically for about five months out of that time, we had a place to sleep, a place to shower, and a place to use the bathroom and eat. And that was it. You know, we had, we eventually got Wi-Fi installed, which was, you know, it was a godsend, but it was like dial-up speed. So uh, it really tests your patience when it comes to that. But uh, you really learn to lean on the people to your left and right. Uh, when you're in a situation like that, you know, it's, there's, you realize that, okay, we have nothing. We have nothing here. You know, we can't leave. We can't do anything. This tent that we're living in is, this is home for the next, you know, several months. So you just learn to accept things as they are which is you know it's one of the reasons why the military compared to a lot of normal normal people outside of the military have a very weird or messed up dark sense of humor it's because you know we see things like that and when we go into them we're like all right it's the way it is nothing we can do to change it right now so you know we try to make it as 
comfy and homey as we possibly can, but you know, that only goes so far. Right. And, and I suppose you're in a tent with a, a lot of other guys that you wouldn't normally be having as roommates anyway. So you just kind of got to deal with it now uh, in that time of November 17th or July, uh, in a little over eight months, were you a, I guess you were a, a ranking officer there within what you were doing. Did it help you that you had rank as opposed to just being one of the guys, or do you think that hindered you in some way? I don't think um, it would have helped or hindered. I've never really been one of those people that, uh, yes, I do have rank. Yes, I do have a position of authority, but I've never been one of those people that's thrown my rank around or anything like that. I think people who do that are, you know, I guess compensating for a lack of a better word for something, but it's, they're, they're lacking testicular fortitude. That's what you're trying to say. Uh, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but carefully, but it was, uh, it was, it was definitely different. Um, even, you know, it was my, I think the first, first trip out of the wire, which was, you know, when we leave the base, my first trip out of the wire was on my 24th birthday. I had sole uh, command of a convoy of, you know, dozens of people, multiple vehicles, you know, millions of dollars worth of equipment. And, you know, I'm trusted to make sure that it all gets from A to B safely. And, you know, that we don't do anything that could, you know, cause major foreign policy issues. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it is definitely, um, it's definitely an interesting concept to think about. Um, It's something that to me, because it's just always been something I've had to do. I've never really thought about it, um, I guess, from the other side. I could only assume that being responsible for that amount of people and stuff that that was a little stressful. It can be uh, the most stressful part that I had to deal with. wasn't necessarily, you know, that I had all these people or that I had all this equipment or that, you know, the job we had to do. A lot of it came from was dealing with other people. It's like dealing with the people above me. They'd be like, Hey, we need to do this. Or we need to do this. We need to do this. When, you know, us fully knowing well that uh, we didn't actually need to do that. You know, and it's like my job is obviously my job is to follow orders, but my job is also to critically think and, like you said, solve problems. So sometimes it would be, you know, self-imposed problems that, you know, leadership would come up with and then, you know, they would come down on me because I'm like, no, we don't need to do that. And then, you know, I told them, I was like, I'm, you know, going to state my point, but the second that they tell me shut up in color, I'm going to shut up in color. So that was probably the hardest part that I had to deal with, with all of that. It wasn't necessarily the people that were below me. It's the people that are above me. And I think it's like that with any job though. Absolutely. In, in your time there overseas, was there ever a point in time where there was a loss or casualty that was within your, your command? No, we were, we were very, very lucky in that. There were a couple of times where it was definitely close, uh, but we were lucky that all of us came back perfectly intact. I could only imagine, I, I, you know, knowing just as much as I know of your story, I could only imagine that the people who are constantly living overseas uh, as military people that have the potential of that happening at any time must live under a different kind of stress than anything that, that we could ever even imagine. It's not necessarily a stress. It's just, it's kind of a mindset. Like now, anytime that I walk into a room, like I don't pay attention necessarily to the people. I look for how many windows are here, how many doors, you know, where's the nearest thing that I could use to defend myself if I needed to. Are there any cameras? Which way are they pointing? So 
it's, you know, the, the hardest part for us is that it gives us, I don't want to say a paranoia, but a spatial awareness of every single thing that we encounter. Most people when they spend time overseas, uh, depending on where they're at, you know, we don't like sitting with our backs to the open. We like sitting backed up against the walls where we can see everything that's going on. Uh, we're very careful about, you know, who we're around. We don't like seeing things that can, you know, be associated with things that are overseas. Uh, like for example, my apartment, they put out these termite traps and they didn't tell us that they were putting out these termite traps. And I walk outside one day to let my dog out and I notice that there's this thing in the ground and it's circular about probably eight inch diameter and it looks exactly like a uh, anti-tank landmine. I you know, grabbed my dog, ran back inside, was like, what just happened? You know, me fully knowing that that's not what that is, but in my mind, it's still difficult to associate or disassociate that. Um, right. Even, even now when I see them, it's, you know, I know what they are and I still don't like going near them though. Right. And so it, it, it also kind of refers back to then what you were saying about having a twin where somebody would say, well, what's it like being a twin? Well, you don't know because that's all you've ever known. Exactly. Uh, for, for us, I would say civilians, if that would be the appropriate term, there's not really any way that we could understand the way that you are conditioned, I guess, would be the appropriate word to be in a public place or even an awareness of things like a termite trap and how that might affect you. Not necessarily that it would affect in a bad way, but for a moment of time, give you that little bit of I don't want to use the word panic or anxiety, but awareness maybe of, of what's going on. Now back, back home, I guess we would say South Carolina, I guess that you can call that home. You've been there long enough to call it home. What is, I, I could only imagine that having this disassociation between military and civilian life, that that kind of inhibits a lot of maybe personal relationships. It definitely does. Making friends outside of the military is something that I've just always struggled with, but I also don't necessarily like making friends in the military because I like, you know, I, like I said, I like leaving work and the problem is when we're all together, that's all we all have in common. So all of us, we just talk about work all the time and, you know, it is difficult. There are people that I am friends with that aren't military, but it's because they're also associated with the military in some way. It's a very difficult thing for non-military people to understand, you know, why we have the type of humor that we do, why we don't like being in certain places or why we speak a certain way or only talk about certain things. And it's, that's very hard for people to understand. It's even harder for us to understand why they don't understand it. And even not necessarily not talking about certain things, but almost to a certain extent, trying to stay away from those subjects the best that we can. And so we kind of overtake the conversation sometimes to direct where we want to go. Would that be a fair statement? I would say that's fair. I mean, there are certain mistakes that I guess you could call the mistakes that civilians make when talking with somebody in the military, especially that they've been overseas, you know, they always say this thing, did you kill anyone? It's like, don't ask people that. Right. Because there are certain people in the military that they'll be like, yeah, there are certain others that will say, yeah, even when they didn't. And then there are those that will say no, even when they did and, you know, vice versa. But it just, you know, that's not something that we care to bring up with people who've never experienced it. So when, you know, you're with other people that are in the military, we can speak a lot more openly, which is why we have such a hard time developing friendships with non-military people. Right. So I was a police officer in North Carolina, and I was involved in uh, an officer-involved shooting where my 
partner was killed and I was shot and the assailant uh, was shot and killed as well. And so while police are a paramilitary organization in in a lot of ways, we're not the heroes, I guess, like we would see in, in military a lot of times. But I can completely understand and empathize with needing to be sitting somewhere where your back's against the wall, uh, where you have full view of everything. And so I get that. But then I also understand where people say, oh, you were a police officer. Did you ever shoot anybody? Or did you ever tase anybody? Or did you ever pepper spray anybody? Or did you ever pit a car off? You know, just all of these questions that are completely inappropriate that these people don't see to be inappropriate. And so I'm kind of taken aback sometimes of when these people do know this uh, about me and they ask these questions, especially when I have to answer them honestly. And it's not something that I want to talk about because if somebody said, well, have you ever killed somebody? And the answer is yes, there's going to be a follow-up question. I mean, that's just not the end of the conversation. And so that then flows in uh, for me is then a post-traumatic stress disorder. And we can't say, okay, because you didn't lose anybody or there wasn't, you know, substantial loss during this time, we cannot mark it off and say, well, there's no reason for you to have PTSD when I think that anybody who is in the military has a reason to have PTSD. Anybody who's gone through basic training, I think, has a reason to have PTSD. You know, we don't have to talk specifically here about any one relationship, but did you ever find a point of where you were dating someone where they just did not get it, where you just could not communicate to them why it was this way that you had to do things semantically to say, okay, it, it has to be this way. Oh, hundred percent. There's my, my dating life uh, is right now. I mean, it's pretty much almost non-existent. It's very, very limited. Uh, going on dates for me is very difficult even getting dates for me is very difficult just because I have a hard time understanding people. And because of, you know, the past relationships that I've been in, um, you know, they haven't necessarily been, you know, the best. I've had some great ones. I've had some not so great ones, but unfortunately like the not so great ones, they still keep echoing in my mind. So it's made me very, it's made me very hesitant to want to possibly get hurt like that again. It's made it difficult for me to see, I guess, assuming the best about people. You know, I don't assume the worst out of everybody. I mean, in fact, I generally assume that people are a good person, but then the second that I have a personal interest in that person, then the whole mindset changes of, okay, now I have to protect myself. That's a mix between either military and past relationships. It's just, you know, when you get hurt once, you know, it's like the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me type of thing. You know, I've definitely struggled a lot when it comes to relationships and friendships in general. To me, it's all about the same. So a lot of times I will use the statement that in a relationship, we have to be, have to be vulnerable without being vulnerable. And there's that, that fine line that we have to walk there. What would you say your most difficult uh, situation is in, in a relationship? Mine is probably... So there's two things that one people understanding, you know, my schedule in my way of life and it sucks and there's nothing that I can do about it. No matter how much, you know, you get mad at me for it. There's nothing I can do to change it. Um, I'm going to move. I'm going to be working late hours. I'm going to be up early in the morning. I'm going to be tired when I come home. 
And then the other part of it is that, you know, like I said, how we have the whole, you know, almost double life. Sometimes that switch is harder to turn on and off than we may think it is. Uh, like we're dealing with something, we had a really bad day, we come home. It doesn't necessarily mean we're going to feel the most empathetic sometimes. And it's not necessarily that, you know, we think that way all the time or that, you know, we're being a bad person or that they did something bad or anything like that. It's just sometimes we're just not in the mood to deal with it. Right. And it's, you know, it happens quite often. Well, I find even in my line of work where you've been empathetic all day and then you go home and your partner, your kids expect you to be empathetic, that we're not always the best at being empathetic, especially putting up with things that we really shouldn't have to put up with, but it's just part of life. What are what are the some of the ways that you have set up coping mechanisms to keep yourself from being hurt? And, and don't say by not dating. That's that's not a that's not a coping mechanism there. But there is this thing called COVID going around. I don't know if you know anything about that. So uh, that that may be the problem, not getting a date. No, it's not that. It's that you know me. I I my biggest problem is just talking to people. Like you know, I could find somebody. I think they're you know extremely attractive, you know, they could seem like a nice person, you know, perfect smile and everything like that. But, you know, I have a hard time, you know, when I talk to them, it's not that word vomit comes out. It's just that I don't like necessarily talking about myself. Like if I'm talking to somebody, I avoid saying military or army or anything like that as long as I possibly can. But unfortunately, since it is about 80% of my life, that lasts all of about three minutes. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, it's difficult. And then the next question is because me, I don't want to lead anybody on. So I'm going to be straight up honest and like, look, I am leaving here in roughly this time period. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing, but I am leaving. And so, you know, that is one of the hardest parts about getting dates or going on dates because I, you know, I don't want to put somebody else in a position where they could get hurt or feel that they are let on. So I'm just bluntly honest about, Hey, here's the intentions. It is what it is. And then I've just kind of learned to accept things. I used to take things a lot harder of like, you know, if I didn't have to do this or I didn't have to do this, then, you know, this would be the outcome. But then I realized it was just extremely toxic to myself. I just had to start disassociating, you know, each and every single incident. They're all unrelated to each other. You know, not every girl is going to treat me like this. You know, not every relationship is going to turn out like this. So I just started taking every single thing a step at a time and, you know, not being offended by, if somebody's like, oh, I'm not interested or anything like that, I'm like, all right, that's fine. You know, I appreciate your honesty. So all I ask is that everyone's honest in everything. So that's the coping mechanism that I've had is that, you know, I'll never be upset about something that somebody says. I'll be upset about the things that they don't rely about. You know, as long as somebody's always upfront and honest, then it doesn't bother me. Do you find that most of the people that you interact with are not honest? Oh, I think probably nine out of 10 times. I mean, I think it's just today's society in general, everyone's, you know, trying to put on this face of, you know, look at my life. It's so great. It's so perfect that nobody ever just wants to have a genuine, honest conversation anymore. And, you know, a lot of people are in the situation where I think they're scared to get hurt too. So they don't have to make themselves vulnerable. It makes it hard to try to get to know somebody when someone's not being genuine. Absolutely. All right. We're going to move now into Doc Talks DX. So thank you for listening to Doc Talks today. I'm Doc Brian. And as we get into the diagnosis part of that, you can find that episode on Patreon where we talk about the diagnosis here of Logan 
and what may actually be going on in, in his head and maybe even some pointers, pointers about how to find true love and happiness uh, and being in the military. So we'll talk about those things and, and how to cope with, with the uh, issues that you may be dealing with. So Logan, I appreciate your story with us and, and Logan will join us on the second part of this podcast to discuss their diagnosis. You can find me at thedocbrian.com. All of my social media outlets are there on thedocbrian.com listed at the bottom. So feel free to follow us there. Uh, we're also on the Be Frank Network here, so you can find us at BeFrankNetwork.com. Now, Logan is on TikTok and Instagram, so Logan, tell all of the eligible young ladies where they can find you at. Okay, so my Instagram, uh, nobody judge, right? So it's L-O-L-O-L-O underscore Logan. So L-O-L-O underscore Logan, that's my Instagram. Uh, my TikTok right now is LTHunter16, and that is... My initials, not rank. Initials, not rank. Uh, some people mention that. So LT Hunter 16. I do change that frequently, though. So if you can't find it, don't be offended. All right. So feel free to follow us uh, to Doc Talks DX now. We look forward to having you with us next time. Once again, check us out, Doc Talks DX on Patreon. And of course, we are part of the Be Frank Network. Again, thank you for listening to Doc Talks. Logan, thank you again for being on this part of the episode with us. And we look forward to having you with us in the next one. Thank you for having me. All right, everybody. Thank you. Goodbye.